Hello, everyone. Welcome to our fourth episode of One Digital Debates. In this series, we put workforce experts head-to-head -head in friendly debates about hot topics in human capital management. In this episode, we'll be addressing an increasingly prominent type of regulation that can have an enormous impact on employer compensation policies. The question for our experts today is, are pay transparency policies effective? My name is Melanie Hubler. I'm a senior manager and team lead for HR Consulting at One Digital, and I'll be the host and moderator for today's conversation. Let me begin by introducing our two debaters. We'll start with Vathana Sivansin, who will be arguing that pay transparency policies and laws are broadly positive for both employers and employees. Vathana, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Melanie. I'm happy to be here today to discuss uh, pay transparency. Uh, hi to everyone listening. I'm Vathana Sivanasan, and I'm the HR Consulting and Benefits Council here at OneDigital. I assist our wonderful HR consultants as they support their clients. Thank you, Vathana. It's great to have you here. Next up, we've got Scott Wham, who will be representing the opposing side and making the case that when it comes to pay transparency, the cure is worse than the disease. Thank you for joining us, Scott. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. Uh, my name is Scott Wham. I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation for One Digital's Philadelphia office. Uh, I've spent the past 10 years working with employers in the small to mid-sized market, uh, helping them offer thoughtful, compliant, and innovative benefit plans to their employees. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Wonderful. Thank you both for those introductions. Now, before we begin, let's explain to our listeners exactly what's going to happen today. In a moment, we'll start off by having each of our debaters give a brief opening statement that outlines the major arguments in favor of their chosen position. After that, I will be asking a series of questions about pay transparency to both of our debaters in order to guide the conversation and give them an opportunity to address each other's points head on. By the end, it will be up to you to decide who you think is right. To start things off, I'm going to frame our topic with a bit of context and then hand it over to Vathana to begin her opening statement. Historically, pay transparency has only been made mandatory for government workers and executive level employees at publicly traded companies. Today, there are no federal requirements for pay transparency for the vast majority of the private sector workforce. However, pay transparency is currently gaining quite a bit of steam at the state and local level. In November of 2022, New York City enacted broad pay transparency requirements for employers operating within the five boroughs. And on January 1st of this year, pay transparency legislation took effect in California, Rhode Island, and Washington State, impacting tens of millions of workers and the companies that employ them. When considering both previously existing pay transparency jurisdictions and these more recent additions, pay transparency laws are now estimated to cover about one in five American employees and job seekers. However, these laws ultimately only address pay transparency in a limited sense by mandating that job listings and opportunities for promotions and transfers include salary ranges. While these type of weak pay transparency laws can be consequential, some employers also choose to implement strong pay transparency policies by making all employee salaries visible to everybody within the organization. We will be discussing both of these types of pay transparency policies today with the understanding that the former is much more common than the latter for non-government employees. 
So now let's go ahead and have Vatana begin her opening statement. Sure, Melanie. Uh, pay transparency is important because of the part it plays in the bigger picture. So we're talking about pay equity here. It's just one of the tools in the toolbox of reducing gaps in pay that have occurred and continue to occur along gender, race, and other protected characteristics. So yes, we have a long way to go to eliminate those gaps, uh, but pay transparency helps get us there by creating transparency or an openness around employers or in industry's practices around pay. Uh, are there trade-offs that come with pay transparency? Absolutely. But we shouldn't lose sight of the size of the problem we are trying to tackle here, and that's pay equity. Thank you, Vatana. Scott? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. So my primary objections to pay transparency laws is, one, it tends to tilt the scales against smaller companies. And, and I've spent the past 10 years working with small to mid-sized companies who are figuring out ways to compete every day with much larger companies with much deeper pockets. And one of the aspects that, that small companies tend to compete on is, is not necessarily just pay, but it's the cultural experience that they build within the company. It may be things like flexible time. It may be things like offering employees opportunities to experience a lot of aspects of running a company that would not be available at much larger companies. And my concern is that by requiring pay ranges to be front and center, small, small to mid-sized companies have a higher probability of losing out on candidates who actually might find an incredibly fulfilling job experience. Um, I'm also very concerned about pay transparency and the unintended consequence of rising costs across all sectors. My concern is that human beings inherently are really not the best at objectively assessing their personal value to an organization, and they may not have all the all the access to the data necessary to understand their value of uh, what they're delivering to a company. If they can look up what their colleague is earning and their colleagues earning more, and they feel like they contribute more to the company, but the colleague actually objectively contributes way more, which is why they get paid more, I think it has a high likelihood to lead to significant employee dissatisfaction. And one of the major uh, arguments I've seen in studies that came out of Berkeley and Harvard is that pay transparency, when you start to see what your colleagues are earning, leads to feelings of resentment, leads to feelings of being dissatisfied in the workforce, and, and can actually have the unintended consequences of causing someone who otherwise might have been happy in their job uh, to raise the antenna to looking at other opportunities elsewhere. Last but not least, um, we just lived through the experience of the pandemic where gaps in experience between employees who had to be on site to do their job and those who could work safely at home were put front and center. That experience was noticed. And that experience of, of resentment was real during the time of the pandemic when employees were looking at, oh, well, they get to work at home. Why do I have to be on site? The sprinkle on top of that, that employees that work in non-exempt position, hourly positions will have complete transparency into what the other side of the office is earning. I don't know that that's productive and that raises a lot of concerns. Being able to keep that information separate oftentimes can lead to a much better functioning business that doesn't get bogged down in looking at apples and oranges and trying to compare apples and oranges and the type of work that's being performed. So those are the reasons why at this stage in the game, I have quite a bit of pause 
uh, when it comes to broad scale pay transparency rules. And uh, especially in a time of inflation, when businesses are struggling to keep up with the rising cost of productivity and the rising cost of raw materials and the rising costs of rent, a program that will increase costs substantially or is likely to increase costs substantially uh, gives me pause. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Vathana, for those opening statements. I think this is a great segue into uh, our first discussion point, which is going to be talking about um, those limited pay transparency policies that we're seeing come into the private sector, where employers are including salary ranges and job postings. So, Scott, I think you gave us a great uh, idea into your insight here. So, Vathana, let's go ahead and start off with you. Regarding negotiation, does posting a salary range actually do job seekers a disservice by boxing them in when it comes to that salary negotiation piece? No, I don't think it does. I think it actually provides applicants uh, with more information at the outset about that company and about the position specifically that they're seeking. So more information, particularly around like uh, the salary point, gets that applicant a starting point for a successful negotiation. It's not a black box. Um, so you can use that salary range to ask more questions about uh, what's required um, for performance within that salary band um, and what does it take to move up a band or move up to the higher range of that band within the company to get the, to the top of that pay range. I think that information also pays off when that applicant gets into that position because they can also use that information that they collected in the interview process about the existence of those bands and the criteria it takes to um, achieve the, the salary ranges in those bands. Um, it can help that applicant once they're in to negotiate promotions and raises because they have um, the objective criteria that went into developing those ranges. So I'm in, in the camp that um, more information, better information, clear information gets people better educated to negotiate their position. Thank you, Vathana. Scott, anything to add from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, I think that my perspective is mostly informed from the, the clients that I work with. And my concern with speaking broadly about the position that it puts employees in is oftentimes forgetting about the position it might put an employer in. And what I experience quite a bit with small to mid-sized companies is that exactly what they're looking for or the type of candidate that they're looking for to fill a role uh, can be fluid. And what, what I mean by that is, is a lot of small businesses um, might start off on a path looking for a, a given employee to fill a position. But over the course of interviewing a few candidates, bringing a few people in, what they, they realize what they need is actually different than the job that they posted. And it requires a bit of a pivot in order to uh, address the type of candidate that they're looking for. My concern with having such definitive statements about a salary, salary range and about what, what the role will pay is it hamstrings a small business from being fluid and maybe identifying somebody that has some awesome traits, but they may not have all the skills necessary yet to hit the bottom of the pay range. Right. But they may be somebody who could develop within a short period of time into somebody who could hit that pay range. And my concern is that if it requires a, a, a hard and fast commitment to a given range that's published, that 
it, it hamstrings the flexibility to identify somebody who may bring a lot of value to a position, but may not be there yet, but that, that can grow with the company into that position. I'm worried that this type of definitive statement hamstrings that flexibility to say, wow, this is someone who's really good. They don't check all the boxes. I don't know that they're worth this dollar amount today, but over the next year, two years, they can grow and who knows where they can go from there. So that's that's my primary concern with making such definitive statements. I also think it's difficult to administer for small to mid-sized companies, especially now with the proliferation of work from home positions that occur outside of their immediate jurisdiction. 10 years ago, we weren't having companies hiring a CFO in Florida or hiring a, hiring a key HR individual in Texas being cited in Philadelphia. Now, employers are in a position where they're looking at the entire job market and saying, wow, I want to be able to hire employees in these other jurisdictions, but to be able to do major comp studies in order to place the appropriate range based on where a work from home employee is going to be in an outside jurisdiction, that's a that's a major burden to put on a small business owner. So again, get, I, I understand the premise. I understand where it's coming from, but practically speaking, I think that own, these are onerous laws for small to mid-sized companies who have a lot to offer to the job market. Thank you, Scott. What I heard both of you mention was this idea of salary bans and talking about how that is included within a job posting and how prospective employees and job seekers might utilize that. What are our thoughts on job seekers that may choose to not apply for positions, seeing that pay range that might be either too low or too high based on their desired compensation that they're looking for? Vathana, why don't you go ahead and kick us off on this topic? So I think um, salary bans are kind of a critical part of a good overall compensation strategy. And what I mean by that is there are some components to pay transparency and pay equity that uh, are just good compliance hygiene. And having clearly defined salary bans is one of those things that will pay off in other areas of risk mitigation. Salary bans help employers maintain competitive salaries and it lets their employees know where they stand. And the reason they it does that is because you're tying salary bands to knowledge and skills and responsibilities and other um, objective criteria to avoid any kind of appearance of favoritism or some kind of arbitrary assignment of salaries. Even without pay transparency or with pay transparency, we know that employees talk to each other and they do talk to each other about their pay um, so if you can take some of the mystery away from that by creating salary bands that are tied to objective criteria, then there's no room to allow any kind of uh, misperceptions about why someone is getting paid what they're paid. It's also a great way to build internal pay equity by doing that because you're, that objective criteria is what's driving those salary ranges. Um, it also keeps employees informed on the overall structure and strategy for a company's talent pool. And Bothana, from a business perspective, do you perceive that having these pay ranges on there will either increase or decrease how many potential job seekers a company or business might receive? Yeah, I think we've seen already that companies tend to get more applicants. All of us have experiences where we either know folks or we ourselves have gone into job interviews or um, applications where there was no salary range. There's multiple rounds for the interview process. Uh, you might ask uh, about 
salary and you're often told, well, we'll get to that later. There's other rounds or there's other things we need to talk about first. And sometimes you might invest a lot of time in the interview process and get to the ultimate stage of finding out what the salary is. And either it doesn't meet your expectations or you feel that um, you're ready to make the next leap in terms of your compensation. And unfortunately, you've sunk a lot of time into an interview process that hasn't led to your desired result or salary goals. Um, so I think posting that at the outside on those job applications uh, does or employers a favor by increasing the applicant pool because folks know that, okay, uh, this this company is being transparent with me from the outset. They're open. They're telling me what the, the salary range is. So now I can get in there and negotiate where I should be in that band and um, tell them what skills I have to meet those uh, requirements. Scott, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so two things. One is I will grant the perspective that if a business believes that they can compete better in the market by being transparent with pay, that they should do it, right? So I I will give, I will concede that point. Uh, I think my position is, is more informed from a policy perspective requiring employers to make pay transparent. Um, I, I, I still get concerned that it's going to prejudice small to mid-sized companies that have challenges, speaking in broad terms, competing against salaries of some of the, their larger competitors, but where they might have the ability to offer a very fulfilling career that offers upside in other ways and, and may not be able to be expressed on an Indeed posting or a Glassdoor posting or a posting on their website, marketing a role that just includes a salary range and a description of what the job is. So- one, you know, we spend a lot of time talking with our clients in the small, mid-sized market, telling them that they need to really sell their culture. They really need to be able to, to articulate what their value proposition is to their employees and why they should be a, a, an employer uh, that that serious candidates should take seriously. But understanding that if they can't compete on salary, it's going to be challenging to get them in the door to take the interview. So I would be interested in the study that shows me broken out data based on company size as to whether pay ranges actually result in more interviews or less interviews. I can imagine that that may be the case for Fortune 500 companies that are publicly traded and have substantial presence across the country, uh, that they may experience an uptick. But I could also see the flip side where uh, pay transparency for companies that could offer a very fulfilling career uh, have difficulty at the outset uh, attracting a certain type of candidate. Thank you, Scott. I think what I've also heard between both of your perspectives here is we've talked a lot about the salary and the emphasis on these regulations um, and policies that are in place on the salary alone, right? We're talking about the salary, the pay range, as opposed to what you've mentioned, Scott, which is the entire job and the fulfillment of that position. And that's a lot of what you talked about in, in the past couple of points here. So do we feel that these laws and policies are placing too much of an emphasis on the salary alone and not uh, looking holistically at what the employee proposition value might be for an organization. I, I don't think it necessarily puts too much emphasis on salary. I think it just recognizes that salary is a major part of the overall um, employee experience. And I mean, lawmakers are trying to target what they can get their hands around. And um, it's not necessarily something that they can legislate when it comes to and culture, like Scott said. So there's nothing that's that prohibits an employer or a business from um, advertising their culture, 
um, advertising, the opportunities for growth, advertising, the benefits, advertising, um, all the wonderful things that they provide to employees in addition to salary, just because they're required to have that job posting. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of things that are still on the table that a pay transparency doesn't necessarily take away if uh, companies want to highlight all those things that they want to offer for that complete employee experience. I think the pay transparency just laws just are trying to address legislatively what they can, which is compensation. Employers still have the power to advocate for all the other things that make uh, the work experience wonderful for employees. So I don't think um, paid transparency necessarily hampers uh, that completely. Scott, any additional to add there? Yeah, I mean, so the argument about resulting in more applicants, again, I I'd want to see more studies on how that uh, has, has come to pass regionally, based broken out by sector, broken out by uh, employer size. Um, it'd be interesting to see. It'd be a compelling point. Then there's also the the flip side of what happens when somebody comes on site, right? And what happens if we were to take it a step further and say that pay range data is the is the starting point, but the end point is we want to know what everybody in the company is getting paid. Like you would if you work for a government employer, you'd be able to look up pay scales for your colleagues and it's very set and it's fairly objective what you earn when you work in a public sector job. And it's all stuff that we can Google and look up and, and see. But the uh, the concern that I have if you take it a step further and what people are actually on the job site is it will increase in greater allegations of discrimination. It will increase litigation when employees see that that their colleague is paid more and they feel like they're doing the same level of work. And that pay would be that perhaps there's a perfectly objective reason why that individual is earning more that's based on their performance. But it's it it, it I am very concerned that it will lead to dissatisfaction amongst populations and lead to a higher likelihood of turnover once somebody gets in the door. So the interview process is one step of it. But then when people actually get in the door and they have this hyper awareness of what their colleagues are making. Um, there, there are at least two prominent studies that I found uh, that were done by Harvard and UC Berkeley that showed uh, when they made that data available, it immediately caused individuals to start comparing themselves to their colleagues. And, and it led to uh, uh, some pretty interesting arguments on the back end. Um, and, and I just know, you know, human nature is that we're not that great at evaluating our own work. We're not that great at, at being objective about ourselves. The tendency is for us to overstate our, our contributions. It's human nature. And I'm concerned that it would lead to a lot of unintended consequences on the job site when somebody actually gets through the door. And what type of more uh, litigation could it lead to uh, in allegations of discrimination that that are that are based on completely objective criteria, but because an employee perceives their value to be higher than it actually is, they're asking they're asking questions. So it's a concern I have. Thank you, Scott. Let's talk a little bit more about one of the motives behind why this type of legislation has been passed um, and is becoming more popular, and that's to reduce pay gaps between workers of different demographic backgrounds. And Scott, I think this is a great jumping off point based on uh, what you were just speaking about on our last topic. There have been two studies done on pay transparency legislation, one from the University of Toronto and Princeton that was studying Canadian salary disclosure laws and one by UNC Cornell and Columbia that was studying Danish paid transparency legislation. 
and both found that pay transparency laws are effective at reducing gender pay gaps. The evidence for racial gaps is harder to come by and is still being studied. Both of the studies found that salary bans actually achieve this outcome mostly by lowering the salaries of higher earning groups rather than raising the salaries of lower earning groups. Is this a desirable outcome from your perspective, Scott, or are there better mechanisms for reducing these types of pay gaps? Uh, it's, it's such a challenging question to answer, especially as somebody who spends his day dealing with health and welfare benefits compliance as my as my as my key thing. It's it's a really complicated question. Um, I'd like to think that that anytime uh, there's a gender gap in pay, it's it's not based on discrimination. That there are instances where it's clearly not based on discrimination; it's based on output, and um, and narrowing bringing salaries down at the high end to bring it in concert with lower earners i don't know that that's a desirable outcome i don't know that that is based on the objective performance of the individuals at at the top i i i think the data is unequivocal that gender pay gaps exist it's a it's a real challenge and it's it's a it's a very difficult problem to solve but i don't know that squeezing the top is warranted uh, insofar as sometimes there are objective criteria why a woman would earn more than a man or why a man would earn more than a woman that has nothing to do with gender or or any other type of data that is not related to the work. So my concern is that we start viewing everything through a lens that eliminates sometimes people perform really well and deserve exceptional compensation. That's a fact. At Harvard, Harvard did a study where they evaluated uh, a given employee who had had an extraordinary year managing the Harvard pension fund, and Harvard's pension fund is insanely rich. Uh, that individual had an extraordinary year and earned a lot of money, and it became public. And students started protesting, started getting really upset that that individual earned that amount of money when you know the, the person had an exceptional year and was paid a lot of money. Like that, that happens. That happens at businesses, and it had nothing to do with the individual's gender. It had nothing to do with their race. It had nothing to do with 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 other than that they grew the fund by X amount and the compensation structure paid out a dollar amount. When that was made public, you had people up in arms, and and Harvard had to backpedal and go a different direction. So I just get I get concerned that we start painting with really broad brushes from a national policy perspective that do not effectively treat or do not effectively solve the real issue of gender pay gaps in a nuanced fashion where it actually exists. Pathana, what are your thoughts here? I'm with Scott here that this is a tough question primarily because of the reasons that he cited, which is the studies. So going back, you mentioned the the study on Denmark. I know that if we go back to the original premise of pay transparency laws, which is pay equity, in Denmark, I think it did manage to reduce the equity gap by about 13%. Um, I might be off by uh, one or two percentage points, but the, the rate at which it lowered salaries at the top range was significantly less than that. I think it was around two to 3%. So there's going to be trade-offs when you're trying to level the playing field, especially when it's a playing field that's been heavily tilted, drastically tilted in one direction, there's going to be some trade-offs. And I would be interested in a study that looked at the rate of growth in those top ranges versus the rate 
that uh, those salaries were compressed or lowered with the implementation of those tr salary transparency laws. Um, I don't want to say that you're looking at whether somebody's salary decrease was worth it, but I would like to see was the gain, the overall gain from these laws worth some of the trade-offs. And again, I, I want to emphasize that, you know, pay equity is not a zero-sum game. It's not pay transparency or nothing. Um, it's You have to look at um, every possible avenue uh, to figure out what's going to be the most successful to resolve some of these inequities. And for the moment, pay transparency seems to be the biggest tool we've got. Um, of course, there needs to be additional information on it, but I don't think um, a lot of employers can also afford to wait for more data before they try to reverse some of these inequities. I think you make a really good point there that that the I, I feel like the market's going this way anyway, right? So so if I look at large companies that are posting jobs um, on LinkedIn or on Indeed or Glassdoor just to pay attention to what they're up to, it seems like the vast majority of really large companies that are going after well-qualified candidates have embraced pay transparency as their, as their uh, whether by law and jurisdictions that are requiring it, but also in areas that are not requiring it, right, as perhaps a competitive advantage for them. And I have a sense that that this is going to force the hand before policy forces the hand mm -hmm. for employers to embrace this. So I think that that's a, a truly valid point. And again, concede, I will concede that anything that an employer can do to help win qualified candidates, they should consider, including posting pay ranges. But from a policy perspective, uh, anyone I've been to Denmark. And anyone who's been to Denmark knows that Denmark's not the United States, right? It's a very different culture. It's a very, equity is the name of the game in Denmark, right? Equity is mm -hmm. the entire name of the game. And the gap between low earners and high earners is much smaller in Denmark than it is in the United States. Uh, salary ranges are very different in Denmark. Tax ranges are different, a lot of different, but there is more of a sense of solidarity in, a, in, the, in Denmark. And it's a country of 5 million people, right? So it's it's a small country. Canada, too, is much smaller than the United States and has a history of the solidarity of that's similar to Denmark, a little bit less so. Uh, Denmark's kind of on its own island with, with how progressive it is in its, in its employment policies and governmental policies generally. But the United States is its own animal. And, and one of the the, the things I'd say about Denmark is you're probably not experiencing much of a pay differentiator between Copenhagen and Jutland, but you are experiencing much pay, much different pay dynamics between New York City and Little Rock, Arkansas, or or New York City and small town Pennsylvania, where I live, right? So my concern is that, again, the nuance of policies and the nuance of implementing programs like this is much different in the United States. It's a much bigger country. And, and my concern is that in addition to putting pressure on small businesses, it's going to put pressure on different regions to keep up with salaries that are being paid in regions with much higher cost of living when this data becomes widely available. So just another another concern I have, again, I'd like to see these studies in the United States, but to Vatana's point, we may not have the time to wait for studies and the market may force it and it may just be a good practice, but uh, it's, you know, it's a great point. Speaking as the as, as the lowly employee benefits attorney, that's, that's just my concern. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good footnote to put in this podcast, which is that a lot of these studies look at uh, countries outside of the U.S. And uh, this is not just a, a legislative shift we're talking about when we talk about pay transparency. It's also uh, a cultural and not a business cultural shift. I think it's an overall uh, U.S. 
working philosophy kind of shift. Yeah, you both bring up some really good points here. Those policies were driven at the at the entire country level. We're not seeing that here in the United States, right? We're seeing this type of legislation come at an individual state or locality level as opposed to our federal government. And Scott, I think you mentioned that it may start forcing the hands of other employers to have these salary ranges be posted um, in those states where, where employers are having to meet those compliance standards. So what are our thoughts in this mixed compliance environment that we're in, where some employers have to comply because of where they are, as opposed to those who don't? Is this going to be a disadvantage to those employers who are not forced to comply? Or is this going to be an advantage to them because they're able to see what's being offered in the market and then better able to plan for their own applicants in that way? So I think that it's, it is useful for businesses to be aware of what their competitors are paying. I, we have these conversations with the employers that we work with every day that, look, you have to understand who you're competing against and you have to understand that who you're competing against may not be the same type of company that you were competing against 10 years ago. And through consolidation, especially with really large companies like Amazon or Comcast, as they continue to enter more verticals and expand business operations drastically, a lot of the clients we work with are going to realize I'm competing against those larger companies. Companies. So I need to be telling a very similar story to them. So if I was going to say that there is an upside to pay transparency for small businesses to have unequivocal, unfettered access to what that data looks like upmarket with large with their competitors and even you know their their immediate competitors maybe in the small to mid-sized market as well that intelligence would be useful. The question though becomes to what extent a is it going to lead to increasing pay ranges similar to what we observe in the healthcare sector, right? So one of the, just to draw a, a parallel to something we're dealing with right now as employee benefits consultants, at least on the EB side, is a new law requires all hospitals to, to publish their negotiated rates with every insurance carrier. And what you see when you see the negotiated rates are that some carriers pay way less than others. Um, it varies drastically from payer to payer. Uh, it varies drastically from region to region. A lot of payments are based on outcomes and based on performance. And my concern is that a lower performing hospital is going to see the, the higher performing hospital's compensation rate and increase their rates as well. And, it, and, and the concern is that it's going to lead to the lower performer asking for more money. Right. And that's a very real concern. It's a very real phenomenon that we observe in other sectors. Will broad scale pay transparency result in an unsustainable increase in wages uh, that small businesses will have a difficult time keeping up with? Yeah, I think for the employer out there who doesn't have to deal with pay transparency yet, and that also might end up being few and far between given the, the explosion in remote work. Um, you might find yourself having to comply because you've hired someone in a state that, that requires compliance. But um, if, if you truly are in a position where you, you don't have to think about um, complying with a law yet, I think the takeaway is to understand that, um, that, that it is here to stay in some form or fashion because it's, it's trying to address that bigger problem. And I, the upside to it is that it's trying to create trust 
and the objectivity and fairness and loyalty among your employees. But that has to be done right. And by that, I mean, there's going to be some challenges that have to be worked through. If you haven't done a pay uh, analysis before, and I, and I don't mean uh, an expensive, you know, top shelf one, just looking at your salaries across the board and aligning them with job titles and roles and seniority and experience levels. Has that been done in your company before? Do you have salary bands? Is that something you've considered? Um, your job descriptions, ha have you revised and updated those? Uh, these are all like the building blocks you have to have in place to comply with those salary transparency or pay transparency laws. So just because you know that law is not there, all those pieces, it's just good compliance hygiene because if you get that discrimination lawsuit, you, you've got stuff that you can show I'm regularly doing these things to clean up our practice. We're regularly communicating what we're doing to employees so they know what position they're in. They know what their roles are. They know what their value and their worth is. So even without seeing a salary range or a job posting, you know, employees look, they look outside to see if there's a better opportunity. Um, so I think it just reminds employers that just because you've got somebody on board, you got to keep earning them uh, to keep them. Um, so all, all those components, I think, is just good practice that you want to think about, even if pay transparency is something that's far removed from what you have to worry about today. So just keep an eye on it. <laughs> I guess I would say it's a simplistic approach, but start folding in some of the, your, those practices now because things change so frequently. Last year, we didn't have half the pay transparency laws that we're looking at now in 2023. Um, and who knows what the next tool is going to be to smack down pay equity and, and what other things you need to put into your practice to comply. So that, that's my uh, takeaway for the employer out there who might not have to be forced to think about this. But there's some there's some pieces in here for them that definitely help with their broader compliance objective, even if it's not pay transparency. I'm just really happy that Vathana and I work on the same team. You know, one of the things that we talk about at One Digital and and that we leverage our HR consulting resources, our HRC resources with is to tell employers that re forget about what's required by law, right? Re we deal with what's required by law and, and, you know, we're here to help you navigate that aspect. But every day you're competing for the loyalty of your employees and every day you're competing for people who you want to bring into the organization who have a lot to contribute. And regardless of what the law requires, if you see what companies having success with, with programs and getting getting qualified candidates through the door, even if you're not required by law, it's good hygiene to think about these policies and to start to think about, you know, how can we, how can we put ourselves on a footing that uh, has us equal or better to what our competitors are doing. And to Vatana's point as well, a lot of small businesses d lose the discipline of constantly going back and measuring, you know, what is the role worth? How are we, what are our metrics for success? How can we be objective in performance reviews? How can we make sure that our policies resonate with our employees in a way that builds confidence that, that we are trying to be as objective as possible in promoting employees or increasing pay or having those performance reviews, whatever it may be. So it's putting aside the law employers really should be thinking about this. I mean, they should they should constantly be going back and revisit what's the market saying, what's resonating with candidates out in the market, what are the top performing companies do to attract and retain talent, and how can I build those policies uh, to compete on equal, equal footing? 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great segue into our next topic, right? We've talked about employers that are being, you know, maybe now forced to look at pay transparency in a larger scale because of these, you know, legislative changes, these regulations that they may have to comply. We've talked a little bit about those who might be on the sidelines where they're not necessarily needing to comply right now, uh, but maybe watching this all happen, you know, from a different state where these these types of legislation and regulations aren't there yet. But there are organizations out there who are all in on these types of policies and have adopted a transparent policy, whether that's making those salary ranges or bands global within an organization or even just to the general public that are private sector employers outside of the public sector employers that we already know kind of comply with this type of legislation. So thinking about that, how do we feel this is going to change the environment uh, with regards to increasing or reducing performance? Do we think having this sort of all-in type of structure would assist employers in being able to increase productivity and performance with their employees? Do you think it takes that anxiety of what are others being paid away from employees? Or do you, or do you think this is going to negatively impact performance for an employee? I think it goes back to doing things the right way before you communicate anything to your employees about um, your pay practices. If you have set aside, you know, the objective criteria for each pay band for each role, communicate that clearly, consistently amongst your workforce. I, I think transparency will end up increasing your performance because employees are not in the dark about why somebody might be earning more. I think that, that Answering that question, why is what employees want to want to hear. Likewise, um, if they know the criteria for their role and why they're earning what they're earning, it gives them something to strive for in terms of reaching that next level. If they have a objective criteria that they can reference that their employer provided them. Uh, so if if those criteria are set out clearly, effectively, um, employees understand what their role is worth, what it takes to get to that next stage, um, then employees who are satisfied uh, with that are going to perform better. I would argue that any declines in productivity because of an employee knowing um, someone else's salary, it's more a result of what was revealed, the content of that revelation, than just the revelation itself. So it goes back to making sure that you're uh, doing the right things in the first place before you um, end up communicating your pay practices to your workforce. Uh, this is this is where I ha I still have the hesitation, right? I still I, I still have the hesitation of the jealousies that that we navigate every day uh, with, with some of our clients and and trying to and oftentimes the the um, the, the dissatisfactions the dissatisfaction that some employees uh, feel when it comes to their pay relative to some of their peers is irrational, right? It's it's not based on objective criteria. It's, it's heavily subjective. I'm also very concerned too about the reality that there are major differences in compensation based on the type of work that's being done. Uh, and there are, the, 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 unfortunately, the nature of incentives sometimes may seem very unfair to certain employees, right, who are in completely different roles than others. And um, I get concerned whether that's productive, right? Whether it's productive for individuals who are on a non-exempt pay scale, who are getting paid an hourly wage to be 
fully aware of what the regional vice president is earning. I don't know that that's terribly productive. And again, uh, with a lot of small businesses, that separation isn't always very great on the day-to-day work site. So I'm concerned. I'm just concerned about the, the human nature of our ability to be able to take a look at what the actual value is that we bring to a company and to be compensated appropriately for that if you're going to make this data public to your employees. I think uh, Scott said something important there about irrationality. I, I I don't think that there's a way to entirely remove any disgruntled employees or employees that simply don't understand no matter how clearly you write some of these requirements for the salary band. So if you're going into something thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eliminate everything, everything's going to be rosy, we're going to have an awesome game plan and this is going to work you're going to set yourself up for failure. So there's always going to be a percentage of that population that you're going to have difficulty explaining some of this too, no matter how hard you've worked to make it fair and equitable and open, but that can't be a drawback uh, to, to trying to clean up and level some of these um, options. Great. Thank you both. One of the other items we talked a little bit about already is it's difficult to match the experience of workers in other countries to that of workers that are here in the United States. However, we know that at the public sector, the government workers that we have have already been on this fully transparent world for a while. Knowing that, what can we learn about their experience in in that world of transparency and how that might then apply in the in the private sector now that we're seeing these types of regulations and legislation come into play do we think that we're going to see something similar where it kind of just is what it is uh, with our government workers and they kind of know that going into it um, when accepting a position at that level versus what we see in the private sector now scott why don't you lead us off here yes i'll start by saying the point of the governmental public sector is not to make a profit Right. So one of the major trade-offs with government positions is that they tend to be lower paying than the private sector over time. But there's also a guarantee of a pension. There's a guarantee of a retirement with most public jobs. So that is not the case in the private sector. And the case in the and the, the realities of the private sector is that they need to make a profit. So from a public sector perspective and understanding that salaries are going to be lower, one of the major ways that public sector jobs attract candidates is with guaranteed retirements, right? And guaranteed pension levels. In the in the private sector, the dynamics are just completely different. Private sector, the, the objective of the job is not to make sure the roads function or that you know the taxes are are audited and and that the that good government occurs. It's to turn a profit more often than not. Right. And one of the unfortunate developments over the past 40 years, depending on who you talk to, is the fact that the guaranteed retirement no longer exists in the in the private sector. Uh, it's a it's it's privatized. It's 401k. It's it's contributing to invested plans based out of your own own paycheck. And the the pay scales as published with the government just wouldn't work in the private sector because people are evaluating that job, understanding that, yeah, okay, the salary might not be that high relative to the similar work in the private sector, but I'm going to have a guaranteed pension, 
which is a major value of working the public sector. Or for somebody who had student loans, right? I'm going to work for the I'm going to work in the public sector for 10 years and have six figures worth of student loans forgiven. That's not something a private sector employer can compete on. So again, I just don't know that it's apples to apples. Yeah, that's correct. I I don't have anything extra to add to that because I I don't like to reach for public sector uh, comparisons and these types of things. They're just too far apart. Um, you you could you can get that from information from any employee who's left the private sector of the public sector and joined uh, a private sector company. The functions are different. Uh, the reasons for existence are different. Why people stay are it's different. Why people leave is different. Um, even their interactions within there, there's no um, comparable like type of company culture to talk about. It, it's it's just not a similar experience. So it, I I don't know if that data there is more has more utility than some of the data from like the foreign countries um, either. I, I just think it's just it's just not helpful for private sector employee trying to navigate this employer trying to navigate this world to, to look at the public sector. I can't, I can't believe I forgot to mention too, that they offer great benefits. <laughs> it's great employee <laughs> benefits. Like, like that yes. should have been the first, that should have been the first thing I mentioned. So, um, yes. so it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's not apples to apples. It's, it's just a different, different uh, sector altogether. Sure. And that is something that we've, talked about a little bit throughout our podcast here is pay ranges on the weaker end of being a pay transparency model as opposed to you know really looking at holistic values of organizations and what they're offering i think that's a great point that both of you uh, have jumped in on to provide thank you so much another topic we kind of wanted to talk about today was just a recent harvard business review and brown university project that studied the effects of 13 U.S. state laws that were designed to protect the rights of workers to ask about the salaries of their co-workers. And what the authors of this project found was that these types of laws actually led to a 2% drop in wages on average, and they attributed that to a reduction in employee negotiating power, which we've talked a little bit about already. Instead of creating that upward pressure on employers to raise salaries, what are our thoughts that global pay transparency models might unintentionally create a race to the bottom effect? Vathana, why don't we start off with you? Yeah, I think this goes back to trying to avoid the unintended consequences of pay transparency if you don't do things correctly. So yes, there have been studies that show drop in wages like we discussed earlier, or things like pay compression. If you focus on creating um, objective performance measurements or rewards, you can help with that. And it'll make it a little bit easier to monitor what leads to increased pay and it kind of takes the subjectivity out of the equation. Um, but yeah, this this also goes back to the trade-offs again. Um, I would be interested to see um, if what, what the gain was in relation to that 2% drop so it's a bit of a balancing act here. I think some trade-offs are unavoidable. I think what we're trying to probably mitigate is um, some kind of catastrophic or uh, dramatic um, trade-off or consequence and um, 
trying to reduce these pay gaps that turns people off completely uh, to addressing inequities because they hit them so hard. But um, uh, yeah, I, certain trade-offs are inevitable. It's just I would like to see them in context of what the gains and the rewards were. Yeah, so I think about this a lot because one of the one of the realities that I'm sure about that you spend a lot of time talking about, and it's not as much of the direct direct piece of my practice, but I do think about it quite a bit. It's just the different comfort levels that people have in the and advocating for themselves. Uh, there are individuals that are completely uncomfortable advocating for themselves and they may be doing the best work imaginable but they're just their personality is not one that they're going to go and and trumpet their their contributions to their to their manager or sit at a table and play hardball in a negotiation and we observe differences in personalities across a broad spectrum of type of individuals but there is compelling data to show that there are gender differences in in negotiation. There uh, there have been studies that show that. We take a little bit of a different approach at um, within my office to supplement our performance reviews that uh, we consult with at One Digital and we work with our HRC team to do. But we really advise employers to get to uh, to have a system for getting to know their employees at a deeper level to be able to identify employees that may be prone to having that discomfort in advocating for themselves to pay special attention to the contributions that they make, understanding that it may be difficult for them to come and and have this conversation. So we use something called predictive index and predictive index is what we use to profile employees. So we use it for collaborating. We use it for hiring, you know, for looking for a certain type of position. And it's intended to remove certain biases in the interview process to, to identify candidates who have personalities that really fit the job description that we're building before we even know who they are or or bring them in for an interview, really trying to identify that. But we can see pretty clearly using the system who who may have a level of discomfort in having direct conversations about themselves and advocating for themselves. And we want to make managers aware that that may not be within their comfort zone, but they are a major contributor and they deserve to be compensated at the highest levels and they, and we can't afford to lose them. So, you know, I, I really like this strategy of supplementing, you know, the hard work and the, and the compliance cleanup that Vathana was advocating or earlier understanding pay ranges, having objective criteria, making sure you have it, but then also taking it a little bit step further and and getting to know having managers that really get to know their employees and and can identify employees either male female whatever race whatever gender identify those individuals who may be may be predisposed to not advocating for themselves right and not and and not being complacent with what you can get away with and paying them and being proactive when they're major contributors to the team and rewarding that performance so just a way that we just a strategy that we've embedded within one digital for evaluating talent and evaluating and identifying uh, different personality traits that may lead to challenges and that type of conversation. But it but it helps objectively identify people who we need to pay special attention to to make sure they're being compensated fairly. Thank you, Scott. I think you bring about a good point uh, in this conversation, which is with the ideas of pay transparency and having this you know, maybe moving towards full pay transparency. When we think about merit-based raises, which is a tool that many employers use to retain, attract, and also allow employees to know, right, that they're performing at a high level and that they're valued. 
does a move towards pay, pay, full pay transparency remove or reduce that tool for employers? Do we think it's going to cause any difficulty in conversations with employees if you're providing a merit-based raise to one employee who may be at you know, came in at a similar level as another one, and one employee receives one and one employee doesn't. What are our thoughts from that dynamic of a social and morale perspective for employers here? Again, I, I think this goes back to how you build your compensation structure. Merit ideally is an objective performance criteria, and you're a Objective performance criteria are what is supposed to be creating your salary ranges, your salary bands. So if you create those objective performance measurements, I think you're explaining your merit increases. You're communicating to employees what it takes to move to the next band. If someone performed uh, incredibly well, then that increase is based on performance, objective performance criteria. Uh, so, so. No, I don't think pay transparency is not harming merit increases. You're removing the guesswork, uh, I think, for what it takes to reach the next compensation level for employees. And um, you're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is rewarding um, good hard work uh, with pay increases and promotions. So I, ultimately, I think communicating um, those criteria are a good thing, and it's good for morale that employees are able to see, okay, I, I did a, an amazing job this year. I, I completed a, a, a ton of assignments on time. I went above and beyond on some, some of the assignments. Um, I added value to my company in objective ways. And because uh, the role was clearly defined, um, yes, I'm eligible for that merit increase. I think that this is this is something we deal with already. Right. I feel like this is this is something that that companies have to be thoughtful about right now. Right. That that when you have performance reviews and you have a merit increase structure, that you need to have a thoughtful merit increase structure so that uh, you're doing your best to get ahead of some of the employee objections that that will come. Because even without paid transparency, employees talk. Right. Uh, that's just a fact. So one aspect that I I've observed a lot of HRC consultants advise our clients that utilize HRC, and I've had the privilege of watching a ton of these meetings, is is you need to have, like merit increase discussions can't be once a year. You can't just have one annual meeting with an employee and discuss their performance and give them a raise. That performance is a yearly endeavor. And, and managers really need to have a structure for checking in consistently so that every employee has the chance to succeed and what's required to succeed is known. So right now, without pay transparency laws, you know, you need to be, it, it can't just be an annual performance review with a merit increase. It has to be an ongoing dialogue. The employee has to be able to have the chance to share feedback with the manager, with roadblocks they're encounter, encountering. They may need to pivot what the goals are, what if they they, if they um, encounter troubles that were unanticipated, and it's a bit of a fluid process that the individuals working with the manager, uh, alongside their manager, with throughout the year, pay transparency again. It might go back to the to the human nature of, you know, 
Fathana got a three and a half percent increase. I got a one and a half percent increase. I feel like we're doing the same work. I feel like we're doing the same thing. Why was that the case? You know, I don't, I don't understand it. And anything you say to me is not going to get me off the, off the ledge. That's the challenge we deal with now. It's a challenge we're going to deal with in pay transparency. But I think, I think the overarching takeaway for an employer is even aside from from uh, pay transparency to Vatna's early point, it's good. It's good compliance management to make sure that you have a consistent touch point throughout the year. So even today, an employee is going into their performance review with a pretty good idea of where they where they fell. Do I think pay transparency when employees know exactly what somebody else got? Do I think that they that that uh, that could lead to some some dissatisfaction? Of course. And not all managers are created equal, and not all managers are excellent. And getting managers to skip, st- stick to the script sometimes can be really challenging. My favorite line ever that I heard from one of my mentors is, "Your manager is a greater predictor." of your future health outcomes than your doctor uh, because of how much impact they have on our daily lives. But, um, but again, uh, I, I think just generally speaking, um, employees that walking into a performance review and a merit increase should have a good idea of where they fell on the spectrum before they even walk in the door. Great. Thank you so much. I think we've provided our listeners quite a bit to think about So as we begin to wrap up today, I want to go ahead and just ask one last question and also give both of you the opportunity to make a closing statement, perhaps provide some points that we didn't cover today within our questions. My last question for you to think about is imagine you're an employer who lives in a jurisdiction with no pay transparency laws at all at this point in time. What policies would you recommend for them? Are we thinking traditional secrecy model is best, a limited transparency model with salary bans or full salary transparency, or perhaps you have some further guidance that's completely different than any of those points that we've spoken about already. Additionally, please use this opportunity again to make a closing statement or share any final thoughts that you have around this subject that we may not have covered yet. Scott, let's go ahead and start off with you. Yeah. So again, I'm going to break character a little bit here and say that that I I think that working with One Digital's HRC team to get a to get a full sense of the best practices and making sure that your business is in a, is is being as competitive as humanly possible, as efficiently as possible in your local job market, or the job markets where you're seeking candidates is is essential. And and all of the recommendations of Atma made are ones that that employers should take seriously. Even if you're not required by law to post job descriptions, if your competitors are doing it, you probably got to do it. You probably you probably should think uh, about about providing that data if you believe you're losing candidates to your to your competitors for that. But then beyond that, the hard work is uh, the really hard work is when you actually get good employees in the door and you really want to keep those employees. Um, constantly tweaking and revising and revisiting your best practices for uh, performance evaluations, for for metrics used to measure performance, which can be really hard in a collaborative workforce, right? It can be really hard to assign objective metrics to employee populations that are working across different uh, sectors of the company or collaborating with a bunch of different departments and working on projects that pull in a lot of different individuals. It can be hard assigning an objective criteria, but we have a lot of people here who can help. We have a lot of people here that work for One Digital who can come in and try to make sense of, hey, these are the objective criteria that are most relevant for, for this division. These are the objective criteria that may be relevant for another division. 
division. And here are best practices for measuring this throughout the year so that when individuals walk into a performance review, um, they're not surprised, they're blindsided about, about the feedback they're going to receive because they've been receiving feedback for the entirety of the year, right? So if there's one takeaway, if you're listening to this and feeling overwhelmed about this topic and about uh, the fact that this is a train that's moving and will likely spread to more jurisdictions and will likely become something that we see, even if it's not required by law, it's happening. Um, but we have people here who can make sense of it. And we have people here that you know I rely on to bring into my clients to, to really help them navigate these murky waters. And uh, and if, if you walk away from, from this feeling overwhelmed, just know that there are people here who, who are are really great at helping you evaluate the best practices for topics like this. Thank you, Scott. Vathna? Well, Scott did my job for me, so I think I'm just going <laughs> to sign off early. But I, I echo 100% everything Scott said about our fantastic HR consultants. Um, I think their strength is the fact that they're not, you know, pie in the sky kind of people, they're very realistic about what you can accomplish and what you should accomplish. And they have a great deal of experience working with those small and medium sized business owners that Scott so passionately advocated for. Um, so you might not be in a position or you might not have the requirement to jump in all in on pay transparency. And it might be something you wanna phase in as you think about your overall culture and what you want to communicate to employees about that culture. So employers are facing the possibility of a permanently shrinking labor market, right? So why not use every tool you've got to keep your workers and get new ones? So if you do it the right way, you can avoid a lot of the unintended consequences of pay transparency that we discussed. And you can pay, use pay transparency to communicate to those employees what type of company you are and mean it. Wonderful. Well, both of you, very well said. Thank you, Scott Vathana, for joining us and for providing those closing statements. Now, it's up to our listeners to decide, is it good that pay transparency policies are touching a greater number of American workers every year, or do these well-intentioned provisions do more harm than good? As Scott and Vathana reminded all of us today, One Digital is your one-stop shop for workforce management expertise. We're here to support your business, provide strategic suggestions, and empower your employees. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope to catch you again for future episodes. <laughs>